doesn't want to work this morning. Not very restful. Uh, isn't it great to rest? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think these people in the, in the front row, uh, Jane's got the right idea. You know, she's got the comfy chairs up here. And I feel bad for those there in the back. Maybe we could try a, yeah, try a different mic. See, now I have to get up out of my restful chair. <laughs> How's that? How, are we on there, Steve? You know, I appreciate our uh, our people who work back there, uh, Steve and, and Darren and Becky and Mark and Mark. and um, Am I missing anybody? I think I got everybody. If, if I missed you, just come up and tell me about it later because I, I don't want to miss anybody because that's a uh, sometimes it's a, an unappreciated ministry back there of what they do to keep the slides going and keeping the sounds going. And it's a very stressful ministry. And, you know, we all get tired. We get tired of things that we do. And I thought it was opportune that God led me to this message that I'm going to bring to you this morning the same time that we spoke at elders meeting this week about how we're just sometimes exhausted and we exhaust ourselves in church um, with the ministries that we do. You know, we all work very hard at our jobs and, and after a long week we want to we want to get home and we want to relax with our family and, and there's more work to do there as we think about summer coming and um, lawns the mow and flower beds to clean out and all that work. Uh, we, we need a rest. And, uh, you know, I look forward to my, my nice couch or my nice bed where I can sleep. And I hope that everybody sleeps all night long. If you're not sleeping all night long in a, in a bed, um, I'd recommend a, uh, a visit to the doctor. Uh, that's a serious thing because practically we need rest every day because our bodies are not built to go 24-7. But today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 4, and it discusses this rest that we enter into as God's people. And what we're going to look at is what does this rest look like? You know, and this is a widely debated subject in Christian circles, and those there's a lot of those types of people out there who may brand themselves as Christians or may look like a Christian. They use the Bible for their own needs. And the question really is, is, is there a Sabbath? And how, how or what or what are we supposed to do with that? And this passage really talks about what is it we do with this day? Do we set a specific day aside for rest? In the spiritual sense is what it's talking about. And is there still a Sabbath? And, and I could just say, yep. Yes, but I think a lot more explanation uh, is needed for that today. So that's why you get to hear me talk today. So, <laughs> um, so since there's so much complication about that, I, I want to put our minds to rest about this this morning. Somebody got it. <laughs> so... Not only a day, I think this message is important to you if you struggle with how you should observe the Sabbath, but it's essential to our Christian walk. Um, 
This is a rest that rescues you from the condemnation of sin. Uh, this is a rest that will truly set you free if we understand that the rest that we're talking about today. So let's, let's go over there to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to read the, uh, the first 13 chapter or first 13 chapters, 13 verses of Hebrews chapter 4 this morning and see if we can understand what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. And, and you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually start back here. I apologize. I said 4, but we're going to start at uh, chapter 3 and verse 12. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Chapter 4 says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have entered that rest, just as he said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who were formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And again he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains the Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirits and of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed in the eyes of him who we must give account." What's he talking about here? What is this writer of Hebrews 
really getting on to. He keeps having this repeating theme. says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then it says again, as I swore in my wrath, they won't enter my rest. What's this rest that he's talking about? You know, we look at our world out there and there's these threats of school shootings. There's, there was a shooting at a, a business this week in California at the YouTube offices. I'm sure there's things we didn't even hear about on the national news that happened that I'm not aware of. There's these threat of teachers' walkouts. Or maybe they did walk out. I don't know. It was hard to follow. Um, there's a lot of unrest in the government. There's there's always terrorism. We can always worry about that. We've got problems with our family. And it, it happens every day. And does it make us restful? How do we enter this rest? Is it hard to sleep at night? Because these things are, are bothering you, keeping you awake, thinking about all these horrible things that are affecting us. How do we rest? How do we find a rest in spite of all these things? I think we, the first thing we need to understand about this passage is, is what is he referencing here? That they shall not enter my rest. Maybe if we find out why they can't enter the rest, that'll figure out what is the rest that they're trying to enter. And he's talking about, if you look at verse 7, which I love Psalm 95. That's our first reference we can look at there. And you don't have to turn there. But maybe something to, to look up uh, later on this week. I would recommend that you read Psalm 95. And he's, the psalmist says there, They tried me, though they had seen my work. And he's talking about this experience after the Israelites came out of Egypt they were complaining and just to kind of give you an idea this is right after the red sea and and maybe here's a quick brief it's a not a comprehensive list of the work god had done at this point for them israel had been held in captivity for about 400 years and god kept them from annihilation as a nation he kept the promise to abraham at this point that they would be a great nation and a huge number of people left egypt they egypt noticed and then they, uh, you know, even before that, they were kept safe from the plagues that affected the Egyptians, that, you know, if the Egyptians' cattle die or their, their firstborn died. He kept them safe from all of that. And then after that, they leave Egypt, and Egypt notices, and they, they, they send after them their army. And God saves them from the army. They walk through the Red Sea unharmed. They walk through this the sea where they, they, the sea parts, and then it drowns the Egyptian army. And so they get to this place called Rephidim in Exodus 17, and they begin to complain. They, they say to God, he's not with us anymore. He brought us out here in the wilderness to die. Even though all this stuff had already happened, you know, does God even exist? He's not even here with us. He brought us out here in the wilderness just to kill us off. We're going to die of thirst because there's no water out here. <clears throat> and so, if you read in Exodus chapter 17, again, an, another great passage um, you could reference. Um, 
Starting in chapter 2, I'll just read briefly. It says, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses. I said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And Moses cried to the Lord and said, What shall I do with this people? They're ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there at the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and they called the place Massah and Mirabah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And after everything that God has done for the Israelites, everything that he's done to show that he is their God, he rescues them from Egypt, they still didn't even believe that God was there with them. And Psalm 95, if you want the scripture reference, uh, verses uh, 10 and 11 says, God says, I loathe this generation for 40 years. I loathe that generation. There are people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Even though I've showed them all these things, they don't know me. I, I swore in my anger, he says, they sh truly they shall not enter my rest. And we can look at it as a, as a physical rest because they were going to the promised land at that point. These people did not go into the promised land. They died. Their children went into the promised land. But it's also a spiritual rest because they didn't believe in God. And so they were condemned in that way as well. And, and then in like manner, those who don't believe today creeks, are also condemned because of their unbelief. Those who, be, who believe in God's promises enter his rest. So the question is, what does it look like to enter God's rest for us today? And for believers, for us... If you believe in the Lord, it looks like a confidence in Christ. But I want to clarify that, that it's a confidence in His salvation, that He's actually saved us from this, our sin. Not just a knowledge of it. I think there's a lot of people in church and in, in the world out there, if we went out into the streets of Alliance and talked to them, they, they would know. Uh, yeah, I know what the gospel is. I know that Jesus died and saved me from his sin. I, I know what that I know that story, but they don't have a confidence in it. Do you have a true confidence in salvation? You can be very knowledgeable about it. I think these people in Exodus were very knowledgeable about who God was, passed down by tradition, but they didn't know him. When it, when it came down to saying, you know, I believe that God is going to save us, he's not going to let us die of thirst. They complained, say, he's not here. He doesn't exist. If you know that you have that salvation, then you have that confidence. You're in that rest. And the question is, have you? And then I think another question, a very legitimate question that comes out of this passage of Hebrews 4 says, what's this have to do with the fourth commandment? And if you don't remember what the fourth commandment is, it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And if we look here at verse 8, 
Joshua, who led them into the promised land, if you remember, that's our reference here, it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not have spoken of another day later on, referencing Psalm 95. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Is that the same Sabbath rest that he talks about in the Ten Commandments? For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. So we need to strive to enter that rest, verse 11 says. So there's many that believe that we still observe the Sabbath day to day, like I talked about before. And I think for good reason they feel as though they believe this. They'll say the Ten Commandments say so. And that's true, the Ten Commandments do say so. But let's explore just for a moment what the Ten Commandments say and why they say it. Why does God tell us to keep the Sabbath day holy? In the Old Testament, the, old, the, the Israelites lived in a dangerous place before God. A lot more dangerous than we live before God because they didn't have a Savior like we do. They didn't have Jesus Christ who died for their sins. We've been delivered from our sins by Christ. So because of this, they had to offer sacrifices daily and even more than daily. We don't have time to get into all the different sacrifices they went into, but these sacrifices, lack of a better term to maybe help us understand, they got them by for a long time. And we get into the book of the, the laws, and I have a, an excerpt here for, from Numbers uh, 28 if, if you want to look it up. But it talks about how often they needed to Sacrifice just at a minimum each day they sacrifice one lamb in the morning, one lamb in the evening. There were multiple ones going on all day long. If you sinned, you needed to make a sacrifice. If you didn't realize you sinned and you came to the realization maybe a week, a month, a year later, you had to go make a sacrifice. It was constant, constant. Could you imagine that? Man, I wouldn't have any sheep left. There wouldn't, be much, there wouldn't be much left in my life because I would always have to be sacrificing. But the priest had to sacrifice this daily on behalf of the people because maybe the people didn't even know that they had sinned. And the priest had to constantly do this for them day after day after day. And, you know, and then on the Sabbath day, they did extra sacrifices for the people. They had two lambs that day in the morning, and then two at night. That was just the minimum. And then, of course, in, in addition to those, there's the many annual and quarterly offerings made, the many feasts, and those, so many offerings that they had have made, a very bloody and terrible, terrible uh, just mess of animals that were killed to sacrifice to the Lord. And we don't, we don't observe these sacrifices today, and why not? If, if the rest of the Sabbath came through Moses or came through Joshua, there wouldn't have been a, been a reason to offer another rest again. And we know that Psalm 95 is written after all of this, and there's still a promise of entering into a rest. However, the rest that God is 
offering in Psalm 95 and the rest that's offered today, and even the rest that was being offered to the people back then in Exodus was a spiritual rest. A rest that we can have a confidence in Christ. They had to wait for their for Christ to come at that point. That's why they had to do the sacrifices. Mark chapter 2, talking about Jesus and how he interacted with the Sabbath day. And Jesus explains it a little bit, maybe a little bit clearer for us. It says, One Sabbath, he, being Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and they made their way. His disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look what they are doing. It's not lawful on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you ever read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to them who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was not made for man. The Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. I apologize. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what's that mean? If the Sabbath was made for man, so the Sabbath was for the man to rest for us. It wasn't for God. During the week, if you're out working and doing things, this, this opened the man up to more sinning or, or a woman. You would have more opportunity to sin. If you had a day set aside to just focus on the Lord and focus on what He's done for you, maybe you'd have less opportunity to sin, more opportunity to say, this is what I need to do to be closer to God so I'm sinning less. Why did they have more sacrifices on the Sabbath day? Maybe they came to more realization that they had sinned even more, that they were so far from God that on that day, maybe they felt even more condemned about their sin. These sacrifices were to help the Israelites escape the wrath of God. And then for one day, focus on Him. He wants a relationship with them seven days a week. And they had that, he set that one day aside so maybe they would realize that that's what he wanted. So for this one day, they quietly worshipped and focused on God. This was for their own good. But then something incredible happens. We know this. A perfect lamb came and fulfilled the law for all of us. The perfect lamb came and they made all the need for all of these sacrifices. So what's left to do? We don't need these sacrifices anymore. The perfect sacrifice has been made. Do we quit focusing on God now? No, I think rather we focus all the more. Not just one day set aside for God, but every day is set aside for God. Every day, we can be with God. This perfect lamb has removed our sin so we can be in perfect fellowship with God. 
We no longer live in fear for our lives. We're perfected without sin in the eyes of God because of the perfect sacrifice that's covered all of our sins. We don't need to hide away to try to keep some type of law because the law has already been fulfilled for us. We, we, have a, we have a whole seven days that we can go out and tell people about our Savior. You know, it's incredible in our culture, we don't have a, a necessary push that we have to have work all seven days. We have one day that culturally that we usually have a day off. And it's great that we meet on that day. We have an opportunity to invite people to our church. We have an opportunity to go out and bless people, our neighbors, our friends, our family, to say, I love Jesus, and this is what is important about him because he set us free from our sin. So how do we enter this rest? How do we tell people about how to enter this rest? Well, the worship team read this morning... He read for us, starting at verse 11 in Hebrews chapter 4, about how we can strive to enter the rest. I'm going to read that again because I, I just love this, this passage so much. It says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of morrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom he must give account. So if you haven't received the salvation of Christ, and I'm not talking about just the knowledge, as I said before, but rather the confidence, the knowledge. You know that you know Christ, and you know that He knows you. Then you indeed have the rest that He's talking about. You've entered His rest. And if you don't, rest is going to be fleeting. Rest will be impossible for you. You're going to sit in your easy chair. You'll lay in your bed, sit on your nice couch. You will never feel truly restful. No matter what. And why? Well, in one manner, verse 12 tells us that the Word of God saves us. It's living and active. This Word of God saves us so much, but it's this two-edged sword. It's also the same Word of God that if you don't have the confidence of salvation, it's what will tell you that you're condemned. That you are condemned if you don't enter God's rest. The law of God will condemn you to death because... If you haven't entered his rest, that's where the truth is that condemns us. If you've not put your faith in Christ, there's no way you will ever enter the rest. I know I keep saying it over and over again, but I think it's important for us to understand. We need to enter it by giving our lives to Christ. Only then will we have true rest. Paul talks about this. He deals with this so well in Galatians. And if you're uh, leading an oasis group or you, you study at home, uh, I would encourage you to uh, read Galatians in correlation with this, uh, the whole book. I'm going to be lots of reading today. Um, this is a fantastic study. 
Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 14, Paul is addressing Peter, who was telling people that they had to live under the law, that they had to observe the things of the law to be a good Christian. And he confronts Peter on this. And he says, starting in verse 14, he's writing about what he confronted Peter, what he said. And he says to Peter, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? He was telling Gentiles, those who didn't grow up Jewish, that they had to observe the Jewish customs, that they had to do certain things to be a part of the family of God. And, and Paul and Peter grew up as Jews. So he says, we, you and me, Peter, are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, meaning that no matter what you do according to the law, that doesn't justify you, that doesn't save you from your sins, but faith through Christ Jesus even now, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. There is no way that the law, by trying to follow the law, that you would ever save yourself. You will find no rest there. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul was a big law follower, and he went and killed the Christians beforehand. And then he found, or rather, the Lord found him on the road, and he became one of the most prominent apostles of the church. And he built the church. And he's saying, now, if what you're saying, Peter, is right, that we need to follow the law, then I need to go destroy everything that I've already built. For through the law, Paul says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith to the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if unrighteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Why did Christ die for us? If you can hear me today and you say, I believe that Christ died for my sins, then he's the perfect sacrifice, and the law is fulfilled. And all of this can go away. We can, we can put all of this stuff aside that we think that we need to do to make ourselves better. If we're still held to the same constraints that the law requires, then why do we need Jesus in the first place? What's the point? We, don't need the, we just don't even need the whole New Testament. We just throw that out. I added this this morning. This Galatians is fantastic, um, so that's why I said read it. But I want to I want to give you another reference this morning. I want to read uh, Galatians chapter three and verse ten says, 
For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So if you want to have one piece of the law, you have to have it all or you're cursed. You have to realize that it is not it is not possible for you to follow the entire law. That's why we needed Christ. That's why we needed Christ. And praise the Lord that we have Christ. Praise the Lord that we don't live under the law. So what's it mean? If we're to enter into the rest that Christ provides, we need to truly enter it. And, and I think that even us as, as Christians, and I, I do this myself, we do things because we, uh, we think it, it'll make us a, a better Christian, you know. It, it'll make us look better, maybe uh, make us sound better. A, a lot of us will make up good-sounding rules so that we can be more holy. Well, I attend this church, and that makes me better. You may not even think that, but that, that's what you're doing. You know, I, I go to church every Sunday. That doesn't make you a better Christian. That doesn't make you closer to God. That's, that's making up a rule. We could know the Bible really good. I want you to know your Bibles. Don't get me wrong. But a mere knowledge of Scripture, there's a lot of atheists out there that know the Bible really, really well. And they can argue both sides of it really, really well. But it doesn't mean that they have a relationship. They put themselves under their own law because they have a way that they think that they're good. They're good enough in some way. Just because we know the knowledge of this book, but we don't live by the spirit of this, what it says, we don't have the rest. Maybe, maybe you say, okay, well... I give a lot of money to the church, or I, I do really good things for the poor. Uh, I serve at church a lot. Man, if I, if I serve a lot, you know, that, that 50% thing that the elders came up with, you no, know, I'm going to give 100%. I'm just going to run myself into the ground. I don't want you to do that. I want you to find rest in Christ. This is an opportunity to come here and fellowship with your brothers and sisters, not only here on Sunday morning, but during the week when we have Bible studies, I know many of you talk and discuss, and a great community has grown out of Wellspring in the short five years that we've been here. We want to have an opportunity to do that and not be so caught up in the work of the administration of church. Because if you look in the Bible, it doesn't say anything about all of that administrative stuff. It doesn't say anything about Sunday school and how you're supposed to teach it and what type of curriculum we're supposed to buy and what we should do for the, the nursery ministry and what type of things should go in the bulletin this week. It doesn't say any of that stuff. It talks about a relationship with Christ. And I appreciate all of the work we put into to making Wellspring what it is and all the work that we put into it. But the building could fall down and everything could go away and our, God's church will still be here because we have a relationship with Him. And I, I believe that with Wellspring.
So let's think about some things that are maybe dragging us down. You know, I I believe that I, I want to serve the Lord, and, and I love some outside ministries that I work with. Many of you are aware of that. And in the last two weeks here, I stepped out of a really big one. And I said, no, I don't think that this is the direction God wants me to go with this. And I don't think this is the direction that this group should go. And there was a lot of pressure to stay in it. That This is a really, really good thing. This will make us look really, really good. I said, it doesn't lead people to a relationship with Christ anymore. We need to stop. I had no, I've had conversation after conversation about this particular ministry, and I pray that they stop calling it a ministry because I don't think it's a ministry of God anymore. It's just something to make them feel holier and make them look better. And it hurts me because of all the time and effort that I know that many around me have put into it, that I've put into it, and it was a distraction For my relationship with God, it was a distraction for those who were doing it with their relationship with God. And it was a distraction for those who looked at it and said, I think maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. Maybe that's what God looks like. But it wasn't what God looks like. Excuse me. (coughs) I want to talk to people about the rest I have in God. I want to talk to people about the rest that we can experience. There's, There's so many... Other areas I've seen, social media just brings me down. It's so unrestful. There's so many distractions from TV. There's so many things that just pull us out of the rest that God's given us. You know, God's given us some really good, really good principles. You know, I'm not a medical doctor, but I know that it's good to take some time off from your work. At a minimum, a day a week. But there's, there's a lot of research out there about taking vacation and just unplugging from this place that you live in, taking a trip, getting away, refreshing yourself. I like to refresh myself and take take the scripture with me or, or just take some time and pray. Get away from how busy life is. Get away from these distractions. We need that rest physically, but we need it spiritually. And then we can Truly be in that rest every single day as we walk with the Lord. We'll leave you with this final truth from Galatians chapter 5. Again, please read Galatians this week. It'll take you like half an hour to read through it. Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 1, says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, and what he means by that, he's talking about the law, because within the law you need to be circumcised. Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You were severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith 
working through love. He's talking to us in this. He says, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the, the truth? The persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little bit of leaven leavens the entire loaf. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you, you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, then why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. <coughs> for you were called the freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't take your opportunity that you're saved from sin, that we can sin more, is what he's saying. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out you are not consumed by one another. If we beat each other up over these rules that we make up, over these things that we have to do to be more holy, we end up consuming each other. We're consumed with ourselves, trying to make ourselves and those around us more holy through the rules that we make up. The law will never save you. The only rest you will find is in faith in Christ and by loving one another. I want to challenge you this week. While you're reading the book of Galatians for me, find areas of your life that are not restful and give them up. Because you're free in Christ. Don't worry about trying to be better because it's going to make you holier. The only way that we become holier and closer to God is through a relationship with Him. Don't let these things pull you down and pull you back into somebody else's system. That's my challenge for you this week. God wants a relationship with you. He doesn't want to have more rules in your life to bring you down. Dear Heavenly Father, I don't know what this means for those sitting in the room. I don't know what distractions, what things are not allowing us to rest. I know what things are not allowing me to rest. I know what obligations that have been placed upon me that you've said, you need to remove those. I pray for each and every one of these people here, all of my brothers and sisters, remove the things that do not allow them to rest. Help them recognize it and say, I need to let go. I need to have a relationship with you, Father. This is more important. A relationship is more important with you than anything else in my life. Whether it be a place that they're serving, whether it be a job, a relationship, an obligation. <coughs> Father, help us have the boldness to let it go and to draw closer to you through the fellowship you offer in your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.